We start with the proposed taxpayer finance lawsuit against Big Oil. I've got Vancouver City Councilor Adrian Carr and Bill Thielman standing by. First, have a listen to this here now. Avi Lewis, you'll hear his voice here, the high-profile activist, climate change activist, calling for a lawsuit to sue Big Oil for the costs of climate change. Have a listen to this. We here on these lands in the so-called British Columbia are going to sue big oil. This is an historic moment, um, and you are going to be able to tell everyone that you were here when it began. Okay, should the public's money get on board with this effort? Let's discuss it now with our panel. Adrian Carr, Vancouver City Councillor with the Green Party. Very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure, Mike. You bet. Also got Bill Thielman on the line. Bill's a communications consultant. He's running for Vancouver City Council this fall. Hey, Bill. Hey, Mike. Thanks for coming on to both of you. Adrian Carr, let me go to you first. Tell me about your uh, your idea, your suggestion here on this when it comes to this, uh, like a proposed lawsuit here. Sure. Well, it wasn't my original idea. I mean, I certainly saw the advert, um, the, the media coverage of West Coast Environmental Law's um, launch of a Sue Big Oil campaign calling on local governments to actually put a dollar per resident in their city towards, well, or up to, um, towards a campaign that would so, sue Big Oil in a class action lawsuit, basically to recoup the money that we are already spending in droves to repair the damage caused by climate change caused by those oil companies. Yeah, so it'd be kind of like uh, the lawsuits we saw against big tobacco, right, where governments sued the tobacco companies because of health care costs and people who got cancer from smoking. Sort of same principle? Absolutely the same principle. And Yep, you've got it. Okay, Bill Thielman, what do you think of this? Well, I think it's a terrible idea, Mike, and I've said so before, and a lot of people seem to think so on Twitter, but uh, we'll find out, I guess. First of all, it, it's not the city's jurisdiction. Those lawsuits that you we were just talking about, tobacco and uh, and OxyContin, uh, those were federal and provincial and territorial lawsuits, not city lawsuits, and it leaves the city open for liabilities on legal costs, on what if you lose? I mean, Big Oil will have the best and brightest lawyers in the world fighting you, and uh, what if you lose and you have costs against you on top of all the other costs? Uh, I think if the city thinks, if, if Councillor Carr thinks the city has extra money to spend six hundred and probably twenty three fifty thousand dollars, we should be spending on policing or road repair or cleaning the city or getting rid of graffiti or all the other things that are city services that are are falling behind right now, despite some big tax increases. And lastly, if it if it actually was successful, what would the oil companies do? They'd raise the price of gas, so we'd be paying for it either way. <laughs> Councillor, what do you say to that? Well, I say, first of all, um, do you have any idea, Bill, how we are playing right now to repair the damage that's created by the burning of fossil fuels, the rising um, GHG levels in our environment, and thus climate change that is accelerating? The heat dome, the atmospheric river, polar vortex last year. What do you think the city is spending right now just to repair the damage? Create, like having to redo the roads because the roads are getting in terrible condition, mostly in the cold weather as a result, but the atmospheric river and the, and the rainwaters in terms of our civic infrastructure is having a huge negative impact. In case you don't know the number, $50 million a year is what we plan to wow. do the repairs. I want to recoup that. I am being prudent in terms of taxpayer money for a small amount of money to launch 
this campaign to be part of a campaign. It would not be Vancouver alone, even if we were to decide. And we, my motion is not for us to decide and go ahead, but just to set that money aside and make a decision about whether or not we go ahead okay. once we find out what the other municipalities are who are also interested. Bill, but, but, what do you but say? Councillor, uh, I mean, you probably don't know how much money this uh, city spent, Vancouver spent, on gasoline in, in April of gas of uh, this month, this past year, I mean the month of April. BC, Vancouver retail gas sales were $344 million. The first thing the lawyer for big oil will do is get up there and say, Councillor, uh, Mayor, Kennedy Stewart, whoever supports this, uh, your own citizens are driving their cars and trucks and, and SUVs and vehicles, and, and you want us to pay for it. Why don't you just reduce their, uh, their mileage, and that'll cover well, the cost. Bill, thank goodness the city of Vancouver is switching to electric vehicles um, So that in, in, in terms of our fleet. And thank goodness Vancouver is one of the cities in the forefront of purchase of EV sa- uh, car sales. So, there's still $344 um, you know, million dollars worth of retail gas sales in April 2022 alone, Councillor. But you know what? You're thinking like a dinosaur. I mean, we have to get <laughs> off fossil fuels. Sorry. Well, um, we're we not getting get off, off, but obviously that's fuels. my point. Well, I mean, but the point is, the point is we are. The point is Vancouver is leading in terms of uh, electric vehicle car sales. The point is we're putting in that infrastructure to be able to charge those vehicles. The point is our fleets that the city owns are becoming more and more um, uh, electric vehicles. So we are making the right moves. Um, the British Columbia government is saying by by 2035, there's not going to be any more uh, gas car vehicle sales in this province. So we are headed in the right direction. Let's make the oil companies help us by giving us back the money we've already spent and will need to spend to repair damage so we can put that money into even accelerating our move hey. off big oil. Hey, Bill, what do you say to Councillor Carr's argument that climate change is costing the city $50 million a year? I know you're not a climate change denier, so would you be willing to acknowledge that, yeah, I mean, big oil and fo- the combustion of fossil fuels is costing the public a fortune? Well, it is, but the public is part of the problem as well. I mean, we all who have whatever we do practically is almost impossible to avoid some use of fossil uh, fuel uh, products. And so it doesn't really make a big difference. But the oil companies aren't going to lose a case where they just point to how much gas and and uh, and diesel and other fuels are uh, airline fuel. Things are all being used by residents and citizens of Vancouver who would be behind the very lawsuit that Councillor Carr is proposing. This is a loser. Well, it's not a loser. Uh, there's a, a, you know, a, a case that took place in Switzerland uh, just recently that won the case against big oil. Um, so, and there are other cases that are being mounted that this is a movement. They didn't, we didn't lose against Tapaco because the evidence was clear. The evidence is clear in this case that the burning of fossil fuels has accelerated and in large part created the climate catastrophe that we are facing. But, but in the tobacco case, Councillor, it was suppressed by, by the big tobacco companies for years and years, all of the negative medical stuff. And that I think we're pretty clear. Everybody knows and, and everybody understands right now that uh, if you drive your car or your truck or use other products that have uh, fossil fuels in them, that's going to cause some level of pollution, and we're still doing it. Yeah, but Council, Bill, have you not read that? Just, can I just respond to that for yes, one second? Please go ahead, yeah. Tobacco, tobacco companies suppress the case. Well, guess what? The evidence is actually out there. I've been to scientific conferences where they have 
actually recorded the way in which the big oil companies have suppressed the evidence and tried to convince the public successfully with many people that oil and gas are not the cause, that climate change is somehow some, some miracle little thing that's happening out there beyond our control. It is the burning of fossil fuels that is the GHGs. The oil companies deliberately have suppressed that information, spread, uh, spread, uh, suppressed that information and spread misinformation, hiring their own scientists, so-called experts, to say, no, it's not oil and gas. It's just horrible. Adrian Carr, let me ask you this. Why should taxpayers be on the hook for this lawsuit? I mean, this was announced by West Coast Environmental Law. They got a lot of money over there. Why do they pay for the lawsuit? Um, because you have to have people taking on the lawsuit who have actually suffered the damages. Cities are in a perfect uh, position because we have suffered damages. Uh, we are paying the cost of having to repair the consequences of extreme climate events. Um, and so we, it, the case has to be ours. It should be a joint action lawsuit amongst a number of municipalities. Um, and the real point here is the cost of a lawsuit is minuscule compared to the cost of damages. I mean, $50 million a year, that's projected over the next four-year capital plan. Um, but, you know, with the accelerating climate, and look at what's happening in Europe right now. I mean, they can't even get their trains moving because of the, the heat wave that's happening there. Um, so Bill it's Tillman. only going to get worse. Bill Tillman. Well, this is just, the, again, the wrong jurisdiction to take this on. If Councilor Carr wants to do this, convince the federal government and provincial government, if they see merit in it, that's one thing. But this is way, way too much of a tax burden uh, and, a, and a waste of expenditure on the part of cities, uh, residents of Vancouver and, and potentially other cities. It's just, it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, $600,000 isn't going to get you uh, a lawsuit against big oil for starters. Anyway, you'll need many, many, many more millions of dollars. And I wonder if Councilor Carr would come back a year from now and say, hey, we need another six. Meanwhile, she voted to cut policing services by 5.7 million. Uh, we've got, I think it's hypocritical that she voted for the Broadway plan, which has uh, 500 blocks of up to well, thousands of towers, all high, uh, concrete high rises, all creating GHG in the concrete okay. production, and then the heating and mm. cooling. Okay, Councillor Carr, brief response, and then we got to move yeah. on here. Okay, so um, absolutely we need to move on to this case because what you are completely forgetting each time I mention it is that we are paying the cost right now. If the federal and provincial government were paying all the costs to repair climate change, sure, they should take the case on, but they're not. We are being um, saddled with that burden at the municipal level, not just our city, every city in Canada. All right. Um, I want to thank both of you for a really good discussion. Thank you to Bill Thielman. He's running for Vancouver City Councilor. Vancouver City Councilor Adrian Carr. Thank you to both of you for a, a really good debate. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about these stresses and strains on our healthcare system now. We've been talking a lot about this on the show lately, the growing waiting lists, the doctor shortage, the shutdown of emergency rooms in small town British Columbia, you heard on the news today, BC Health Minister Adrian Dix uh, talking about the absenteeism at hospitals. Lots of people off sick. Now that puts even more pressure on the healthcare system. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Kevin McLeod, internal medicine specialist, Lionsgate Hospital. Always pleased to have him back on the show. Dr. McLeod, thanks for coming on today. Mike, I'm, I'm glad to be here, and I'm happy to report that every single problem in our healthcare system is now fixed. So um, <laughs> things are great. It's perfect. We can talk about fairies. 
Okay. I, I wish I wish that was true. If only, if only. <laughs> if only, I know. It seems like the problems are, are so difficult. But let me play a clip here for you from uh, Merlin Blackwell. He's the mayor of Clearwater, B.C., on the show last week talking about the emergency room in his town shutting down again. This has happened dozens of times in this small community and he says, look, we just need just a few more people here to make this emergency room run well. But man, it's like every town is looking for more healthcare professionals. Merlin Blackwell, the mayor of Clearwater, and they'll get your thoughts. We're, we're in this balance right now where we're talking about our communities and we don't want to portray them as crises because we still need to get people to come here. And it's this balance yeah. of, of going, you know, Clearwater, uh, Port McNeil, they're wonderful places. There's so much to do here. It's a beautiful community. I need four people to fix this solution, this problem right now. All I need is four and we're stable. We get back to a good workplace environment. We get back to okay. good scheduling. That's how small the problem is. That's how big the problem is. Okay. I, I thought he summed it up really well. It's a small problem on that scale in that town. He says they just need four people to run their emergency room. But it's like every town is looking for more healthcare professionals. So it's a much bigger problem than that. But your thoughts, Kevin? Well, Mike, absolutely right. And, and you know, I won't name the town because I don't want to freak people out. But, but my uncle's a family physician and, you know, works in a relatively small town in British Columbia. And he's kind of the main doctor there. And, you know, the, the guy works just incredibly long hours and he's 73 so he's he's going to retire at some point and this town will be without a physician you know and there's there's gonna be eight thousand nine thousand people in that town that that are totally hooped um you know and you won't recruit somebody there so it's, it's not just clear water but you know i i almost and i, I don't want to be too controversial but i almost wonder if we need a whole rethink of how we do this right because if you if you really start digging, a lot of the people getting into medical school, and I know I'm going to get hate mail for this, but a lot of people getting into medical school are, you know, coming from fairly wealthy families. The, the average family income for people going into medicine is a lot higher than the Canadian average, and it's, it's tough to get into medical school, right? So, you, you know, you're going to be the kid who didn't necessarily have to work crazy hours in the summer to pay tuition you, you know you have to go do volunteer things and not everybody can afford to do that and you know so we're letting in a lot of people who maybe are based in the lower mainland well how do you get them to go to Clearwater maybe we have to have a long-term rethink and say you know what if there's some smart kid in, in Clearwater who, who wants to go to medical school we're going to make that happen in fact we're going to even make the tuition lower up front so that kid is able to go because him and his family can't afford that tuition from the get-go but hey you know what in exchange as taxpayers and as a community you know we we want an agreement that you're going to come back for five years it's it's not a totally unreasonable thing to do because what we're doing right now isn't working now that's not going to solve the problem tomorrow but i think we need to to have some long-term thinking with some of this too what kind of impact is this doctor shortage having at let's let's say your your daily uh duties at Lionsgate and, and, and elsewhere. Like, I'm taking a look at your Twitter feed, and I encourage everyone to follow you on Twitter. And you, you tweet this morning, more and more referrals coming from emergency rooms that start with, quote, complex patient with repeat ER visits, multiple medical issues, who does not have a GP. That sort of lack of family doctors or general practitioner doctors, what kind of impact is that having? having? Honestly, huge. So it, it's having a huge personal impact. It's having a, an impact on my family. I, I was away 
the family last week in Tofino, which is amazing. But but coming back yesterday was was absolutely brutal. Like the the volume, you know, I was working away till till late at night. Um, you know, it it was it it almost felt just like chaos. And you know, it it's not really sustainable. Um, and even just the volume of referrals, right? Like I'm I'm one guy and you know, I might get 20 referrals a day. Well, that's 20 new people to see a day just to stay above water. Well, I can't do that, right? So you're, you're sinking more and more each day. But a lot of these patients don't have somewhere else to go. Um, it's not like I can say, well, I'm not going to accept that referral. They, you know, they need to go back and see their family physician. Like they're getting sent here because they don't have somebody else. And, you know, it, it that's happening all across the, the province, or even, you know, we get a lot of, of communication from pharmacies saying, you know, you haven't seen this patient in a few years, but they don't have anybody to renew their medications anymore. Well, renewing medications isn't just, hey, I'm signing a form, go back on your meds. Are those even the right meds? Has anybody checked yeah. their kidney function to know they're on the right dose? Like what, like the, those sorts of things are, are, are nuts. Or, or you see people where they've landed in hospital and you get this little note from the emergency saying you were the last physician of record for this patient. So we're sending you all their labs and their emergency department visit. Well, I might not have seen that patient for six or seven years. Like I saw them some other distant time ago in the emergency for a different problem, but there's no other name attached to that patient. And, you know, you, you can't let those things fall through the cracks. Talking to somebody this morning who, who, fell a bit through the cracks who now has a, a metastatic cancer who's who's young it, it it's really it's not the one-off story anymore where you go oh my gosh that's terrible what happened there's there's just so many of these stories as you're hearing in the news and seeing you know it's with um people calling into your show and other things Speaking of Dr. Kevin McLeod about the pressures on our healthcare system, last week we saw Canada's premiers gather in Victoria and they were united in their call for the federal government here to step in with billions more in healthcare dollars. Have a listen, I'll play another clip here for, for you from Clearwater Mayor Merlin Blackwell on this point. I asked him about the premiers asking the feds for money. Is that what this is about? Is money going to solve it here's what he had to say then i'll get your thoughts merlin blackwell the mayor of clearwater yeah i mean you know i don't always agree with john horgan but he's dead on on this one that we need more federal money i I hate to say it we're in such a crisis right now that money is going to solve this issue there are a lot of people in this province that have the rn uh lpn uh doc training that are sitting on the sideline lab techs as well that have opted out of this because of, in the past, toxic workplace environments, lack of pay, burnout. And we need to incentivize these people to come back to work. Okay, what do you think of his thoughts there, Dr. McLeod, there? First of all, let's talk about the, the people who have... It sounded like he was describing situations where either healthcare professionals who are badly needed right now, some of whom have just sort of stepped away from the profession. Is that your perspective, too? I see that. I mean, I see that. I think people have gotten burnt out and they've just said, I'm, I'm out. I can't do it for their own health reasons. Money money will help it a little bit. I, I don't think that we should think, though, that money is going to solve this, right? It's it's more complicated than just money. You know, I had a, 
a lady I saw yesterday, um, and she won't mind me saying this, but she's a singer as a patient, but she was a family physician in Iran. She ran a large hospital there. She had 35 years of experience, and, and you know, she's been in Canada for years where she couldn't get licensed to work here. Um, you know, she, she's got tremendous experience and expertise, but you know, we, we need to look at the way that licensure works. We have to protect the public and do that in a very, very safe way. But what we're doing now isn't working. I mean, look at, look at all these people that are fleeing Ukraine and, and coming to Canada. I mean, many of them will be nurses with 20 years of experience. They could teach us a lot. Like, why don't we have some way to to actually look at the licensure? I mean, just asking for more money isn't going to fix the problem long term we've got a lot of people with skills that we're not utilizing their skills speaking of dr kevin mcleod about our healthcare system what are you seeing on the covid front i know you've spent a lot of time in the in the covid ward uh is it is it still a, a, a wave of covid right going on right now and i i took i took careful note of your tweet the other day that you think we should be getting more of these uh covid antiviral medications into long-term care homes right yeah, I mean, COVID, we're, we're at a different stage and, you, you know, you, you still have the people that think COVID's not a real thing and you have the people that think we have to, you know, have absolutely draconian measures to, to eliminate COVID. Both of those groups are wrong. COVID is here to stay, just like other coronaviruses. You know, we're going to be dealing with this for years to come. Um, the, the crappy thing about COVID is that it is so darn transmissible and it looks like we get reinfections relatively frequently. So when people say, well, it's like the flu, it isn't really because it's probably a bit more severe than the flu. And you don't tend to get the flu three to four times a year. So we do have a real problem with this that we don't have an amazing solution for. You can't shut down the world. Um, you know, the, the antivirals are fairly effective at keeping people that are at high risk of landing in hospital out of hospital. They work in conjunction with vaccination. So having better access to those for people that are that are in the most high risk situations, those highly immunocompromised people, those people in nursing homes, um, you know, or assisted living facilities, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um you know, but we're we're, we're going to see this kind of swing up and down for a long time. But the piece where it's really causing a lot of grief isn't people landing in hospital being admitted. We don't, you know, the problem is always going to have people admitted with COVID. That's just the reality forever. But, you know, staff get sick and it, it's not just healthcare, but it's BC ferries, it's other things, you, you, you know, and when your staff are sick, you, you don't have then the human resource to continue to run the the system. Yeah. Um, how big how big of an impact is that on on six staff members in the healthcare system? And we saw an astonishing stat come out yesterday that in BC Ferries for example, there's an average of over 500 people off sick every single day. And we also heard in the newscast there at the at the uh the top of the hour there from Health Minister Adrian Dix talking about the number of people who are off sick in the healthcare system. Are you seeing that on the front lines a lot of coworkers who are sick? Yeah, a lot of people off with illness. I mean, the, the piece that, that, you know, the media has to dig on a little bit more is why are they off sick, right? Because we immediately make the assumption that's COVID. It, it isn't for everybody. I mean, there are a fair number of people who are off sick because they're just, they're completely burnt out. Um, you know, so why are they off? Like, what is what does being off sick actually mean? Is is that COVID? Is it something else? Um you know, because we're, we're short staff, not 
not just from COVID. There's lots of other reasons why people may not be there. Um, and I, I think that would be very interesting information to, to try to bring forward and, and helpful for just human resource planning in multiple industries, right? It's always great to have you on here. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Mike, anytime. All right. Welcome back. Here we go now. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Are more Americans thinking of moving to Canada? Remember when Donald Trump first became U.S. president? We saw a lot of headlines like that. A lot of Americans thinking of pulling up stakes, heading north to Canada. This one in the news, again, making headlines across Canada this week. This report from the Canadian press. More Americans thinking of immigrating to Canada. School shootings. One of the reasons. The U.S. Supreme Court decision against abortion rights also cited as a reason why more Americans want to come to Canada. According to this report from Canada's National News Agency, got immigration lawyer Ryan Neely standing by. Have a listen to this. Vancouver's own Beloved actor Ryan Reynolds on The Tonight Show talking about this. Have a listen. You know, you have to stop saying that you're going to move to Canada whenever you're mad at something in the U.S. As a Canadian, I'm sorry, but no, you can't. I know we're friendly, but Canada's not your safe house. I mean, we barely let Canadians into Canada anymore, so please, pick somewhere else. I hear Finland is really lovely this time of year. You have to stop. Okay, Ryan Reynolds on The Tonight Show. Let's discuss this now with Ryan Neely. He's an immigration lawyer based in Vancouver. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, Ryan, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. That's a funny clip. I hadn't actually heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Is it really happening, though? Are, are you here seeing that in your practice? Are more Americans looking to move to Canada? I mean, yes and no. Um, you know, as you said in your intro, you're talking about like Donald Trump being elected. Um, you know, a few years ago when there was the the, the sort of the unknown election for, for a few weeks there, uh, we saw an uptick. We see these upticks in interest from time to time. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that, that necessarily converts over to actual number of immigrants, though. Yeah, let's take a look at some of the numbers here cited in, the, in this uh, report from CP. These are statistics from immigra- Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada uh, showing... Uh, a fairly steady increase in the number of people from the United States who are granted permanent residence in Canada each year since the year 2015. Last year, the number of successful U.S. applicants, 11,950. That was up. You go back to 2015, pre-COVID. Take a look at that number, the number that year, 7,655. Wow. So far in 2022, 3,235 applications approved for Americans coming to Canada in the first quarter, the highest total in the last eight years for that period. What do you think of those numbers? Sure. I mean, that certainly tells the story, um, but maybe without the necessary background, which is that, okay. you know, um, the, the federal government sets immigration levels plans each year. And so, you know, it was a fairly static number at about 235,000 from 2000 through 2016. And then in 2017, we saw a dramatic increase in those uh, levels plans. And so while, yes, we're seeing an increase in the numbers of U.S. nationals landed as permanent residents, we're also just seeing a larger number of individuals landed as permanent residents. 
Because I mean, this year, I think the goal is 435,000. Um, you know, just five years ago, it was as little as 300,000. So yes, there's a um, an increase in uh, U.S. nationals landed, but is that an uh, an overall increase as per, as compared to the overall levels of, of immigration? Yeah. Speaking of uh, federal policy on this, I think I think you're right. I think obviously that's a, a crucial part of it. Does the federal government typically want Americans to? come to Canada and live here? I mean, we all hear about the labor shortage here. We need skilled professionals. The United States would appear to be a, a pool of people you could potentially put to work here in Canada. I mean, do our, do our, does our immigration system encourage immigration from the U.S.? Well, I don't think we encourage um, immigration from specific countries. Um, rather, we encourage uh, immigration based on demographics. One is English or French language. The other is a young age. Uh, and then the third one is education. Um, but there are a lot of specific programs that are available for U.S. nationals. And the, um, the, what replaced NAFTA, which is now called CUSMA, Canada-U.S.-Mexico Agreement on Trade, um, that has a provision for labor mobility for professionals, for about 60 um, qualified professionals. And so that's super useful for U.S. nationals. Um, and then the other part is a lot of U.S. nationals choose to come up here to go to school and that is a, I mean, that's a fantastic route to a long-term plan for permanent resident for U.S. nationals. Speaking of Vancouver immigration lawyer Ryan Neely, is it easy to immigrate to Canada? Like if someone phones you and says, look, I'm, I'm based in the United States, I would like to move to Canada. Is that a, is that a fairly straight, straightforward process or is it a difficult thing to do? You know, every case is um, judged on its own, but I would say the biggest, the biggest factor is going to be age, um, and then after that, you know, do you have easy access to a work permit through the CUSMA agreement or are you looking to go to school here? But the idea of, you know, what I get a lot of is a lot of calls from sort of people in their 50s and um, who raised kids. And now they're saying, listen, I got a bunch of cash. I'm in California. I, I want to get out of here. And the reality is there's no great programs for people like that. Um, what we're looking to do is bring younger people into the country so that we can, you know, we have a, a long term tax base. Um, to support all our social programs. Yeah, just taking a look at some of the details for the uh, some of the other programs for people coming to Canada, like the Federal Skilled Workers Program. Mm-hmm. How, how does how does that work? Like, what kind of skills are are they looking for to bring for people coming to Canada? Yeah, so generally, that's um, any job um, experience that requires sort of a university degree or diploma. Um, and, but, but be aware that we haven't been inviting people under that program for about two years, and they've only just invited their first tranche of individuals under that program. And so the selection score for, um, receiving an invitation to apply under the federal skilled work was extremely high this first round. Um, I anticipate that that will come down over time, but, um, with as many people interested in coming here, um, the, the, the selection criteria is extremely extremely high. It is not an easy program to use right now. How about you meant you touched briefly on people who come to Canada to to study, for example. So do you find it in your experience that Americans might come here to study at a college or university, maybe get a degree here in Canada? And does that typically lead to a work permit and an opportunity to stay in the country permanently? Yeah, it's a fantastic route um, for a number of reasons. Basically, yes, if you come here and you get a four-year degree, you're going to get a three-year postgraduate open work permit, which is basically a work permit that allows you to work for anyone in Canada. So 
you can get a, a year's worth of skilled experience, uh, skilled work experience in Canada. You've got a Canadian degree, and generally your English language or French language is going to be pretty good. Um, you're a really, really strong candidate. And generally those people are younger, which gives you more points anyways. Um, so you're going to be a really strong candidate for selection of what's called the Canadian Experience Class. Interesting. What about going the other way? Do you ever hear from Canadians who want to immigrate to the United States? I do hear from them. And then I, I send them on to someone who's an expert in U.S. immigration law. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, how would that how does that balance out with people, Americans looking to come here? Do you, do, you, do you hear more from Americans who want to come to Canada other compared to people who want to go in the other direction? Yeah, so I, I practice purely inbound Canadian immigration, so I hear from people looking to come to Canada. But I will say that, like, over the years, it seems that there's been a bit of a reverse brain drain um, where it used to be that everybody got, you know, all the brightest and the best got pulled down to the United States. And what we're seeing is some of the brightest and the best being pulled up to Canada now because the U.S. immigration policies have become so strict as well that you have a lot of people who have gone to the United States and gotten master's degrees in computer engineering who have timed out on their U.S. options. And so companies are opening um, Canadian branches and hosting those individuals in Canada um, because, that we, because we do have the ability to do that. That's really interesting. We, we were yeah. talking earlier on the show today about the shortage of doctors and, and other healthcare professionals. If you have, let's say you have an American doctor or an American nurse and they decide they want to come to Canada to live and work here, is that more or less a kind of a slam dunk that they'd be allowed into the country given the shortage of those professions here right now? Well, from an immigration perspective, yes, but there's, there's so many licensing issues um, around doctors. Um, that becomes a little bit more challenging. I mean, certainly there's um, an ability to get work permits under NAFTA for, for those professions. The concern is that um, is how you go about getting licensed, and that becomes the so, – so practically, um, that is a barrier to entry. Right. And then often we hear, just to go back to the start of our interview here and the perception that maybe a lot of Americans are coming here because of social or political conditions south of the border, school shootings, mm-hmm. ab- abortion rights, maybe Donald Trump is going to make a comeback. Who knows? I mean, do you actually hear, do, do people ever say that to you? Like, do people ever phone you from the States and say, you know what, I want to, I want to come to Canada because I don't like Trump or I'm upset about a, a judgment of the, of the U.S. Supreme Court? Does that happen? Absolutely. I would say 95% of people that contact me from the United States, um, give that information freely. Really? Interesting. Yes. Yeah. Okay, but that doesn't that doesn't help them get into Canada. Like if they tell an immigration official, "Look, I want to come to Canada because I, you know, I'm just fed up with American politics." That doesn't that's not exactly a a criteria for getting into the country, though, right? No, no, unfortunately yeah. not. I think we'd see a lot of people leaving here as well if they if it was fed up with politics uh, as yeah. a reason to go. 